Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. We 
was Robbie Robinson and the Red Road Ensemble performing Ghost Dance from the album The Native Americans. In last week's show, I left you with a little exercise to practice as part of the first step toward teaching you a new way to perceive the world through a Toltec technique called Not Doing. If you did not hear last week's show and missed the lesson, you can listen to the archives found at www.jackalope105fm.com or you can go to my website www.theshamansbrew.com The technique that I taught you in the last week's show is one of many that you will learn in the coming weeks. Each technique is designed to build on or add to previous techniques and skills you will be developing. Basically, the crossing of the eyes technique you learned in last week, uh, last week's show, is designed to shake your view of the illusions of everyday reality and to quiet the internal dialogue of the constant mental chatter that is going on inside our heads during every waking moment. I've had people tell me that they do not need to quiet their minds. All they have to do is meditate. To that, I usually respond with, in meditation, you focus your thoughts onto one idea, which is beneficial in its own way. However, the very thought of thinking of this one thing creates a stream of thought and mental chatter. It is uh, just more refined in its scope and has been narrowed. The ancient Toltec sh- uh, shamans learned that if uh, one could stop defining the reality by thinking it into existence with this constant mental chatter, then the illusion of our physical world realities and our limitations would collapse, which they refer to as stopping the world. 
Once this happens, we begin to see the alternate reality of our true nature. And for the first time, we begin to understand who and what we truly are as beings of light. I have had people question uh, the advantage of learning these different exercises and why they should spend time perfecting them. I can understand uh, the questions coming from that type of perspective. Um, it, it's a lot like the movie Karate Kid where Daniel became frustrated after spending days of waxing cars, painting the fence, and sanding the floor, and not understanding how these simple tasks were helping him to learn karate. It is only when Mr. Miyagi demonstrates his uh, master plan by asking Daniel to show me wax on, wax off, and show me paint the fence and sand the floor while under assault that uh, the true nature perception of these lessons become obvious. Well, I'm not going to demonstrate the advantage of what you have learned and uh, will learn by attacking you. Uh, instead, I'm going to give you one very exciting example of what you will be able to do once you have mastered the skills of not doing. I'm going to show you how to master the art of scrying by using these techniques to quiet your mind. Walk with me now as I weave our way through the twisting corridors of reality and shed new light on the ancient art of scrying. It is my intention to present you with the basic understanding of the physics and psychology of this ancient art and leave you with some new and very powerful techniques that will greatly enhance your scrying abilities. However, before I get into that, I should explain to you about my studies in various occult and magical disciplines. Besides studying under one of the greatest shaman of our time, I have also spent many years studying the paranormal and various magical traditions, all with an open scientific mind. This has included various traditions such as witchcraft and ceremonial magic. For those of you who are not familiar with these traditions, you might be surprised if you do a little research on them, for they are not evil and they do not associate with the devil or any other evil mythical creature. They are very peaceful and love-based practices honoring the earth and all the creatures that dwell on and in her. They, along with the shamanic traditions, are the caretakers of the planet. All my life I have heard stories of shamans and magical people and while I, I didn't understand a lot of things about journeys and vision quests, I was still drawn to the hidden or occult knowledge of the world that might answer some of the questions I was always coming up with. I was raised in a, a strict Christian home and when I asked these kind of questions I was simply told that if God wanted me to know it would be in the Bible. I am not going to get into religious discussions uh, because I am of the belief that all religions contain the same truth, although it is buried deeper in some than others. Therefore, I respect and honor all religious beliefs, and I have friends from every different religion. However, being fascinated with many fields of science and the unknown in general, I knew this world was for me. As a result, I went through school studying everything I could get my hands on about science and about Native American shamanism, um, about the paranormal, ghosts, things that go bump in the night, and other magical practices, all in hopes 
of finding the path I was destined to follow. Then, when I was in eighth grade, something happened that would shake the very foundations of my world and catapult me onto the path I now follow. I was visiting my grandparents on my mother's side of the family who were of German and English descent. They had lived in the same house in California for many decades, so I was uh, very familiar with the house, all except for one mysterious room that no one, not even my grandfather, was permitted to enter. It was my grandmother's personal space. No one even knew for sure how big the room was because it was always double padlocked, and when she would go in, she would open it just wide enough to slip in and then shut the door quickly behind her. There was a window at the back of the room, but it was always shut. Now, you may be thinking that I'm going to tell you that she practiced witchcraft or something similar, but that is not the case at all. She was a strict Lutheran, and we all know what they think about witchcraft. She was just a little odd in her ways. Anyway, one time while I was visiting, she disappeared, and I, I thought she was out back feeding the peacocks. My grandfather was repairing the shingles on the detached garage in back of the house, and I walked down the hall hallway, and I, um, I saw the door to her secret room was ajar. Now my curiosity always gets me into trouble, and today was no, no different. I had to peek inside. First I called out for her, thinking she was inside, but there was no answer. So I stepped inside, and I was overwhelmed by the amount of clutter and stacks of papers and books and catalogs and junk. At least I know where I get it from. It went floor to ceiling. The next thing I noticed was that the window was open at the back of the room, and I could see my grandfather working on the roof. This really seemed odd, so I was about to leave when I, I spotted a very large, leather-bound book covered in years of dust. I picked it up and blew off the dust and opened it up. It was a detailed, handwritten record of our family tree dating back centuries. I was fascinated, uh, fascinated to say the least, so I sat there reading about our many ancestors. Then my eyes fell upon a name that I recognized from our school history class, and I froze in shock at the realization uh, hit me. The name was Bridget Bishop, and it seemed she was my great-great-great and a few more greats uh, aunt, who happened to be the first person hung in, Sa in the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. My aunt was not only a witch, as I found out later, uh, she was a famous witch, and she was practicing the craft, because archaeologists in 1971 uh, discovered the ruins of one of her, her houses there, and uh, behind a rock in the ruins were all the different tools of the, uh, of the craft, from poppets to uh, uh, talismans, various uh, jars of herbal. Uh, it was all there, so, you know, she was probably one of the few that were actually hung at Salem in 1692 that was practicing, although, again, she had no connections with, you know, Satan or the devil. That was all just made up. Anyway, my adrenaline was really pumping as I, I read what little there was to know about her, and then it happened. My grandmother, who apparently had run to the bathroom in such a hurry that she left the secret door ajar, forgetting I was there, and uh, she stepped in. When she saw me sitting there, reading the book, she screamed so loud that it made me fall over, jump up, 
and scream at the same time, knocking over stacks of shelves and papers went everywhere. It, it, it was a mess. Then I looked out the window, and my grandfather, who had heard the scream, stood up, stepped on a loose shingle, and away he went down the roof, as if he were riding a, a snowboard, heading for the edge, which dropped off into a humongous bed, a rabbit ear cactus. At that moment, it was the most horrific thing I had ever seen, and yet the funniest, as he flapped his arms trying to catch his balance, uh, sliding down the roof and yelling out in desperation, Help me! Help me! Then uh, there was a loud thud. Uh, it turned out he was okay, but from what I understand, uh, they were pulling cactus needles out of his butt for, oh, weeks afterwards. Needless to say, I was dearly loved by them, but not very popular at the time. What I learned that day, however, forever changed my life. I decided to take the hereditary path, and I began to study as much as I could about witchcraft and shamanism, and applying it all to my scientific studies. I found that when you consider many of the ancient arts and crafts used for centuries by uh, various indigenous people and people who practice the magical arts. If you were to apply scientific understanding to some of the energies involved with that and some of the principles used, you would find that you could gain more control. And so this is why I used the, the various fields of sciences that I studied and, and the scientific technique applied to my own magical uh, sessions, my own magical studies. The, uh, the thing I found, and I am still of the opinion, is that many of these fields can be mastered and controlled if you use, just like in science, if you use mathematics as the key. We'll talk about that another time. For now, let's talk about, about the uh, art of scrying. The, uh, the art of scrying has been around for tens of thousands of years. Its practice and methods are so diverse that it would take me hours to cover them all, uh, as they include everything from sticks and bones, uh, ruins, card leaves, uh, tea leaves, pendulums and dreams, crystal balls, black mirrors, and water scrying, just to name a few. So what I would like to do is to narrow it down and talk about just a couple and explain the energetic basics behind all of scrying. In scrying, we are basically searching for information in either the past, present, or most commonly the future. The methods we use are devices or actions that are intended to open up avenues of communication within our own worlds or planes of power. If properly executed, we are given omens or glimpses of the future uh, through information that we would not normally have access to. This information comes from beyond the reality of our everyday physical world, which shamans of my lineage call the tonal. The tonal is our reality of the physical world and constitutes everything in the current world as we know it. If it can be named, it's in the tonal. But the tonal is only a small fraction of the universe in which we live. Beyond the tonal is a place that can only be defined in mathematical terms, and for most humans it can only be experienced 
and not understood with words. This place beyond the Tunal is known by shamans as the Nawal. It is a place where magical energy comes from and the visions of seers originate. Within the Nawal is a state of being that retains a type of vibrational energy yet undefined by science. This vibrational energy is generated by events and objects that take place within all the planes of the multiverse and is locked into an energy matrix that uh, has been referred to by many traditions and cultures as the Akashic Records. It is here that the seer attempts to access. The trick is breaking through the illusions of time and the tonals so that we can perceive and experience the Nawal and the Akashic Records. The only way I know to break through and gain access to the Nawal is to stop the world, as the Toltec shamans call it, by turning off the internal dialogue of constant chatter in your head that is sustaining the vision of the physical world. Once you stop the internal dialogue of the world for a brief moment, the illusions collapse and the veil is parted, granting you access to these other realms and energy records. By focusing on the phantom thumb exercise I presented to you in my last show, you are performing a Toltec exercise called not doing. And it is this stimulus that helps to close down the internal dialogue and stop the world. This week I would like, uh, this week I would like you to start doing the same exercise, but instead of using your thumbs, I want you to use two lit candles for a more mystical and dramatic effect. You will even lose sense of time and may experience profound states of awareness by uh, using candles this way. After practicing this uh, a few times a week, you will be ready to start scrying. There is a special scrying device and technique used by some Toltec shamans of my lineage that is virtually unknown to the modern outside world. In fact, since most Toltec shamans today learn from books or sources outside of the core teachings of my lineage, it is unknown to even them. It is called the Pillars of the Moon. It consists of two oblong black mirrors spaced about six inches apart. When used with the technique just described, it creates a black phantom scrying window between the two solid mirrored pillars that becomes a doorway to the Nawal. Visions through the pillars of the moon are often quite breathtaking and captivating. It was used in a very special way in conjunction with the light of the full moon, hence the name Pillars of the Moon. I have also developed an indoor version of this device using a special array of candles for setting up the proper illumination of the mirrors, which is critical. I will be talking more about this device next week, and I plan on making it available to those who would like to master the art of scrying on my webpage, www.theshamansbrew.com, in the near future. Until then, keep practicing these techniques with the candles. I think you will be amazed at your results. Now, we are going to take a short break before continuing with the reading of the audiobook we started last week. 
This is Marcus Leader, and you're listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network. I am now going to turn up the heat as I present you with a powerful and passionate poem composed and read by the amazing Brandy Schwann called Warrior's Death. becomes full and heat. You lie amid destruction beneath shallow breath begging to your God's mercy. I am here, a weeping lover, delivering to you resurrection. Sink into me, straddled across your nude. The sea, her motion, I invoke. Rolling hips, lulling your reaper's madness. Mm, Are you persuaded now? Avoid hollow eyes of death. Come into me. Scream for life through clenched teeth. Clutch my quivering thighs. High, low pull and push rock me savagely. My head I have thrown back. Give to me, take from me, primal ravaging odd death's painful pleasures. Your strong hands entangle wild locks, pulling me to your massive chest. Eyes to eyes, you are lost. Move through me, pounding plea, oh life. Spun, you are strength. Swift motion, my back pressed. Blood-soaked earth, a war. Our disheveled bed destruction painted red. Your eyes shift, primal beast, and rage. Mm. Resurrected life does rush. Your veins pulse, fire, greed. Stop. Stop. Blades unsheathed. The sound deadly finds silver. Pretty edges rest a warning across your throat. You grin. (laughs) Watch these eyes become one guide, warrior sharp and glare. You calm and clench your teeth. Softly, your mouth, warm and humid breath, consume my breasts. Sensitive peaks tipped pink. Pearl's compliance of your tongue, my lover. Mm. I writhe one last thrust, fury, flowing release, inferno hot and deep. We come. Scream, scream, scream. Ah, oh, 
I am gone. Carnivorous wars have called me home. Breathe now. Well, hopefully Brandy didn't set off any smoke alarms with that reading. While it was poetically classified as erotica, it was also brilliant, and I must commend her on her genius. You can view more of Brandy's work on her website, www.grimtrickster.com, which is also linked from my website. Now let's continue with the reading of The Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaki Way of Knowledge, by my mentor, Dr. Carlos Castaneda. We left off last week as Carlos was talking with Don Juan about his experiences with Mescalito, the spirit of peyote. Sunday, August 6, 1961. I drove Don Juan to the house where I had taken peyote. On the way, he told me that the name of the man who had offered me to Mescalito was John. When we got to the house, we found John sitting on his porch with two young men. All of them were extremely jovial. They laughed and talked with great ease. The three of them spoke English perfectly. I told John that I had come to thank him for having helped me. I wanted to get their views on my behavior during the hallucinogenic experience and told them I had been trying to think of what I had done that night and that I couldn't remember. They laughed and were reluctant to talk about it. They seemed to be holding back on account of Don Juan. They all glanced at him as though waiting for an affirmative cue to go on. Don Juan must have cued them, although I did not notice anything, because suddenly John began to tell me what I had done that night. He said he knew I had been taken when he heard me puking. He estimated that I must have puked thirty times. Don Juan corrected him and said it was only ten times. John continued, Then we all moved next to you. You were stiff and were having convulsions. For a very long time while lying on your back, you moved your mouth as though talking. Then you began to bump your head on the floor, and Don Juan put an old hat on your head, and you stopped it. You shivered and whined for hours, lying on the floor. I think everybody fell asleep then, but I heard you puffing and groaning in my sleep. Then I heard you scream, and I woke up. I saw you leaping up in the air, screaming. You made a dash for the water, knocked the pan over, and began to swim in the puddle. Don Juan brought you more water. You sat quietly in front of the pan, then you jumped up and took off all your clothes. You were kneeling in front of the water, drinking in big gulps. Then you just sat there and stared into space. We thought you were going to be there forever. Nearly everybody was asleep, including Don Juan, when suddenly you jumped up again, howling, and took after the dog. The dog got scared and howled too and ran to the back of the house. Then everybody woke up. We all got up. You came back from the other side, still chasing the dog. The dog was running ahead of you, barking and howling. I think you must have gone twenty times around the house, running in circles, barking like a dog. I was afraid people were going to be curious. There are no neighbors close, but your howling was so loud it could have been heard for miles. One of the young men added, You caught up with the dog and brought it to the porch in your arms. John continued, Then you began to play with the dog. You wrestled with him, and the dog and you bit each other and played. That I thought was funny. My dog does not play usually, but this time you and the dog were rolling on each other. Then you ran to the water and the dog drank with you, the young man said. You ran five or six times to the water with the dog. Well, how long did this go on, I asked. Hours, John said. 
At one time we lost sight of you two. I think you must have run to the back. We just heard you barking and groaning. You sounded so much like a dog that we couldn't tell you two apart. Well, maybe it was just the dog alone, I said. They all laughed, and John said, You were barking there, boy. What happened next? The three men looked at one another and seemed to have a hard time deciding what happened next. Finally, the young man who had not yet said anything spoke up. He choked, he said, looking at John. Yes, you certainly choked. You began to cry very strangely, and then you fell to the floor. We thought you were biting your tongue. Don Juan opened your jaws and poured water on your face. Then you started shivering and having convulsions all over again. Then you stayed motionless for a long time. Don Juan said it was all over. By then it was morning, so we covered you with a blanket and left you to sleep on the porch. He stopped there and looked at the other men who were obviously trying not to laugh. He turned to Don Juan and asked him something. Don Juan smiled and answered the question. John turned to me and said, well, We were not going to mention it, but Don Juan says it's all right. You pissed all over my dog. What did I do? You don't think the dog was running because he was afraid of you, do you? The dog was running because you were pissing on him. There was general laughter at this point. I tried to question one of the young men, but they were all laughing and he didn't hear me. John went on. My dog got even, though. He pissed on you, too. The statement was apparently utterly funny because they all roared with laughter, including Don Juan. Driving back to Don Juan's place, I asked him, Did all that really happen, Don Juan? Yes, he said. But they don't know what you saw. They don't realize you were playing with him. That is why I did not disturb you. But is this business of the dog and me pissing on each other true? It was not a dog. How many times do I have to tell you that? This is the only way to understand it. It's the only way. It was he who played with you. Did you know all this was happening before I told you about it? He vacillated for an instant before answering. No, I remembered after you told me about it, the strange way you looked. I just suspected you were doing fine because you didn't seem scared. But did the dog really play with me as they say? God damn it, it was not a dog. Sunday, August 20th, 1961. Last night, Don Juan proceeded to usher me into the realm of his knowledge. We sat in front of his house in the dark. Suddenly, after a long silence, he began to talk. He said he was going to advise me with the same words his own benefactor had used the first day he took him as his apprentice. Don Juan had apparently memorized the words, for he repeated them several times to make sure I did not miss any. A man goes to knowledge as he goes to war, wide awake, with fear, with respect, and with absolute assurance. Going to knowledge or going to war in any other manner is a mistake, and whoever makes it will live to regret his steps. Then he said he intended to teach me about an ally in the very same way his own benefactor had taught him. He put strong emphasis on the words very same way, repeating the phrase several times. An ally, he said, is a power a man can bring into his life to help him, advise him, and give him the strength necessary to perform acts, whether big or small, right or wrong. This ally is necessary to enhance a man's life, guide his acts, and further his knowledge. In fact, an ally is the indispensable aid to knowing. 
Don Juan said this with great conviction and force. He seemed to choose his words carefully. He repeated the following sentence four times. An ally will make you see and understand things about which no human being could possibly enlighten you. Is an ally something like a guardian spirit? It is neither a guardian nor a spirit. It is an aid. The acquiring of an ally required, Don Juan said, the most precise teaching and the following of stages or steps without a single deviation. There are many such ally powers in the world, he said, but he was familiar with only two of them, and he was going to lead me to them and their secrets, but it was up to me to choose one of them, for I could have only one. His benefactor's ally was in La Hierba del Diablo, Devil's Weed, but he said he personally did not like it, even though his benefactor had taught him its secrets. His own ally was in the Umito, the little smoke, he said, but he did not elaborate on the nature of the smoke. He apparently felt there was nothing else he wanted to say. He got up and walked toward his house. I told him the situation overwhelmed me. It was not what I had conceived or wanted it to be. He said that fears are natural, that all of us experience them and there's nothing we can do about it. But on the other hand, no matter how frightening learning is, it is more terrible to think of a man without an ally or without knowledge. In the more than two years that elapsed between the time Don Juan decided to teach me about the ally powers and the time he thought I was ready to learn about them in the pragmatic, participatory form he considered as learning, he gradually defined the general features of the two allies in question. He prepared me for the indispensable corollary of all the verbalizations and the consolidation of all the teachings, the states of non-ordinary reality. On Sunday, September 3, 1961, I accompanied Don Juan to some nearby mountains where he collected two datura plants from the field. Great care was taken in the harvesting and preparation of the devil's weed. The procedure, which included cutting, mashing, boiling, and leaching the root, was performed with precision and with reverence. Don Juan impressed upon me the absolute necessity for attention in this work, and he assured me that any deviation from the established method could have disastrous consequences. When the final product of this process was presented by Don Juan on Thursday, September 7th, I took it automatically and drank without hesitation. It was somewhat bitter with a pungent odor. It smelled like cockroaches. Almost immediately I began to sweat. I saw a red spot in front of my eyes and the muscles of my stomach began to contract in painful cramps. After a while, even though I felt no more pain, I began to get cold and perspiration literally soaked me. Don Juan asked if I saw blackness or black spots. I told him I was seeing everything red. Everything went fine the other night, he said later. You saw red and that's all that's important. Next, you must plant a shoot, a brote that I have cut from the other half of the first portion of root. You took half of it the other night, and now the other half must be put into the ground. It has to grow and seed before you can undertake the real task of taming the plant. How will I tame her? The devil's weed is tamed through the root. Step by step, you must learn the secrets of each portion of the root. You must intake them in order to learn the secrets and conquer the power. Power is all right for you now. You are young. You are not an Indian. Perhaps the devil's weed would be good in your hands. You seem to have liked it. It made you feel strong. I felt all that myself, and yet I didn't like it. Can you tell me why, Don Juan? 
I don't like its power. There's no use for it anymore. In other times, like those my benefactor told me about, there was reason to seek power. Men performed phenomenal deeds, were admired for their strength and feared and respected for their knowledge. My benefactor told me stories of truly phenomenal deeds that were performed long, long ago. But now we, the Indians, do not seek that power anymore. Nowadays the Indians use the weed to rub themselves. They use the leaves and flowers for other matters. They even say it cures their boils. But they do not seek its power. A power that acts like a magnet, more potent and more dangerous to handle as the root goes deeper into the ground. When one arrives to a depth of four yards, and they say some people have, one finds the seat of permanent power, power without end. Very few humans have done this in the past, and nobody has done it today. I'm telling you, the power of the devil's weed is no longer needed by us, the Indians. Little by little, I think we have lost interest, and now power does not matter anymore. I myself do not seek it, and yet at one time when I was your age, I too felt it swelling inside me. I felt the way you did today only five hundred times more strongly. I killed a man with a single blow of my arm. I could toss boulders, huge boulders not even twenty men could budge. Once I jumped so high I chopped the top leaves off the highest trees. But it was all for nothing. All I did was frighten the Indians. Only the Indians. The rest who knew nothing about it did not believe it. They saw either a crazy Indian or something moving at the tops of the trees. We were silent for a long time. I needed to say something. It was different when there were people in the world, he proceeded. People who knew a man could become a mountain lion or a bird, or that a man could simply fly. So I don't use the devil's weed anymore. For what? To frighten the Indians? Para qué? Para asustar a los indios? And I saw him sad, and a deep empathy filled me. I wanted to say something to him, even if it was a platitude. Perhaps, Don Juan, that is the fate of all men who want to know. Perhaps, he said quietly. Thursday, November 23, 1961. I didn't see Don Juan sitting on his porch as I drove in. I thought it was strange. I called to him out loud, and his daughter-in-law came out of the house. He's inside, she said. I found he had dislocated his ankle several weeks before. He had made his own cast by soaking strips of cloth in a mush made with cactus and powdered bone. The strips wrapped tightly around his ankle had dried into a light, streamlined cast. It had the hardness of plaster, but not its bulkiness. How did it happen, I asked. His daughter-in-law, a Mexican woman from Yucatan, who was tending him, answered me. It was an accident. He fell and nearly broke his foot. Don Juan laughed and waited until the woman had left the house before answering. Accident, my eye. I have an enemy nearby. A woman, La Catalina. She pushed me during a moment of weakness and I fell. Why did she do that? She wanted to kill me, that's why. Was she here with you? Yes. Well, why'd you let her in? I didn't. She flew in. I beg your pardon? She's a blackbird. Chanate, and so effective at that. I was caught by surprise. She's been trying to finish me off for a long while. This time she got real close. Did you say she's a blackbird? I mean, is she a bird? 
There you go again with your questions. She's a blackbird, the same way I'm a crow. Am I a man or a bird? I'm a man who knows how to become a bird. But going back to La Catalina, she's a fiendish witch. Her intent to kill me is so strong that I can hardly fight her off. The blackbird came all the way into my house and I couldn't stop it. Can you become a bird, Don Juan? Yes, but that's something we'll take up later. Why does she want to kill you? Oh, there's an old problem between us. It got out of hand and now it looks as if I'll have to finish her off before she finishes me. Are you going to use witchcraft? I asked with great expectations. Don't be silly. No witchcraft would ever work on her. I have other plans. I'll tell you about them someday. Well, can your ally protect you from her? No. The little smoke only tells me what to do. Then I must protect myself. Well, how about Mescalito? Can he protect you from her? No. Mescalito is a teacher, not a power to be used for personal reasons. How about the devil's weed? I've already said that I must protect myself, following the directions of my ally, the smoke. And as far as I know, the smoke can do anything. If you want to know about any point in question, the smoke will tell you. And it will give you not only knowledge, but also the means to proceed. It's the most marvelous ally a man could have. Is the smoke the best possible ally for everybody? It's not the same for everybody. Many fear it and won't touch it, or even get close to it. The smoke is like everything else. It wasn't made for all of us. What kind of smoke is it, Don Juan? The smoke of diviners. There was a noticeable reverence in his voice, a mood I had never detected before. I will begin by telling you exactly what my benefactor said to me when he began to teach me about it. Although at that time, like yourself now, I couldn't possibly have understood. The devil's weed is for those who bid for power. The smoke is for those who want to watch and see. And in my opinion, the smoke is peerless. Once a man enters into its field, every other power is at his command. It's magnificent. Of course, it takes a lifetime. It takes years alone to become acquainted with its two vital parts, the pipe and the smoke mixture. The pipe was given to me by my benefactor, and after so many years of fondling it, it has become mine. It has grown into my hands. To turn it over to your hands, for instance, will be a real task for me, and a great accomplishment for you if we succeed. The pipe will feel the strain of being handled by someone else, and if one of us makes a mistake, there won't be any way to prevent the pipe from busting open by its own force or escaping from our hands to shatter, even if it falls on a pile of straw. If that ever happens, it would mean the end of us both, particularly of me. The smoke would turn against me in unbelievable ways. Well, how could it turn against you if it's your ally? My question seemed to have altered his flow of thoughts. He didn't speak for a long time. The difficulty of the ingredients, he proceeded suddenly, makes the smoke mixture one of the most dangerous substances I know. No one can prepare it without being coached. It is deadly poisonous to anyone except the smoke's protege. Pipe and mixture ought to be treated with intimate care, and the man attempting to learn must prepare himself by leading a hard, quiet life. Its effects are so dreadful that only a very strong man can stand the smallest puff. Everything is terrifying and confusing at the outset, but every new puff makes things more precise, 
and suddenly the world opens up anew, unimaginable. When this happens, the smoke has become one's ally and will resolve any question by allowing one to enter into inconceivable worlds. This is the smoke's greatest property, its greatest gift, and it performs its function without hurting in the least. I call the smoke a true ally. As usual, we were sitting in front of his house, where the dirt floor is always clean and packed hard. He suddenly got up and went inside the house. After a few moments, he returned with a narrow bundle and sat down again. This is my pipe, he said. He leaned over toward me and showed me a pipe he drew out of a sheath made of green canvas. It was perhaps nine or ten inches long. The stem was made of reddish wood. It was plain, without ornamentation. The bowl also seemed to be made of wood, but it was rather bulky in comparison with the thin stem. It had a sleek finish and was dark gray, almost charcoal. He held the pipe in front of my face. I thought he was handing it over to me. I stretched out my hand to take it, but he quickly drew it back. This pipe was given to me by my benefactor, he said. In turn, I will pass it on to you, but first you must get to know it. Every time you come here, I will give it to you. Begin by touching it. Hold it very briefly at first until you and the pipe get used to each other. Then put it in your pocket or perhaps inside your shirt and finally put it to your mouth. All this should be done little by little in a slow, careful way. When the bond has been established, la amistad está hecha, you will smoke from it. If you follow my advice and don't rush, the smoke may become your preferred ally too. He handed me the pipe, but without letting go of it. I stretched my right arm toward it. With both hands, he said. What do you smoke, Don Juan? This. He opened his collar and exposed to view a small bag he kept under his shirt, which hung from his neck like a medallion. He brought it out, untied it, and very carefully poured some of its contents into the palm of his hand. As far as I could tell, the mixture looked like finely shredded tea leaves, varying in color from dark brown to light green, with a few specks of bright yellow. He returned the mixture to the bag, closed the bag, tied it with a leather string, and put it under his shirt again. What kind of mixture is it? There are lots of things in it. To get all the ingredients is a very difficult undertaking. One must travel afar. The little mushrooms, los honguitos, needed to prepare the mixture grow only at certain times of the year and only in certain places. What would happen if you should lose or break the pipe? He shook his head very slowly and looked at me. I would die. Are all the sorcerer's pipes like yours? Not all of them have pipes like mine, but I know some men who do. Can you yourself make a pipe like this one, Don Juan, I insisted? Suppose you didn't have it. How could you give me one if you wanted to do so? If I didn't have the pipe, I could not, nor would I want to give one. I would give you something else instead. He seemed to be somehow cross at me. He placed his pipe very carefully inside the sheath, which must have been lined with a soft material because the pipe, which fitted tightly, slid in very smoothly. He went inside the house to put his pipe away. Are you angry at me, Don Juan? I asked when he returned. He seemed surprised at my question. No, I'm never angry at anybody. No human being can do anything important enough for that. You get angry at people when you feel that their acts are important. I don't feel that way any longer.
Saturday, January 27, 1962. As soon as I got to his house this morning, Don Juan told me he was going to show me how to prepare the smoke mixture. We walked to the hills and went quite away into one of the canyons. He stopped next to a tall, slender bush whose color contrasted markedly with that of the surrounding vegetation. The chaparral around the bush was yellowish, but the bush was bright green. From this little tree you must take the leaves and the flowers, he said. The right time to pick them is All Souls Day, El Dia de las Animas. We continued walking, and he picked three different flowers, saying they were part of the ingredients and were supposed to be gathered at the same time. But the flowers had to be put in separate clay pots and dried in darkness. A lid had to be placed on each pot so the flowers would turn moldy inside the container. He said the function of the leaves and the flowers was to sweeten the smoke mixture. We came out of the canyon and walked toward the riverbed. After a long detour, we returned to his house. Late in the evening, we sat in his own room, a thing he rarely allowed me to do, and he told me about the final ingredient of the mixture, the mushrooms. The real secret of the mixture lies in the mushrooms, he said. They are the most difficult ingredient to collect. The trip to the place where they grow is long and dangerous, and to select the right variety is even more perilous. There are other kinds of mushrooms growing alongside which are of no use. They would spoil the good ones if they were dried together. It takes time to know the mushrooms well in order not to make a mistake. Serious harm will result from using the wrong kind. Harm to the man and to the pipe. I know of men who have dropped dead from using the foul smoke. The first time you smoke, I will light the pipe for you. You will smoke all the mixture in the bowl and wait. The smoke will come. You will feel it. It will set you free to see anything you want to see. Properly speaking, it is a matchless ally. But whoever seeks it must have an intent and a will beyond reproach. He needs them because he has to intend and will his return or the smoke will not let him come back. Second, he must intend and will to remember whatever the smoke allowed him to see. Otherwise, it will be nothing more than a piece of fog in his mind. Saturday, April 8, 1962. In our conversations, Don Juan consistently used or referred to the phrase man of knowledge, but never explained what he meant by it. I asked him about it. A man of knowledge is one who has followed truthfully the hardships of learning, he said. A man who has, without rushing or without faltering, gone as far as he can in unraveling the secrets of power and knowledge. Can anyone be a man of knowledge? No, not anyone. Then what must a man do to become a man of knowledge? He must challenge and defeat his four natural enemies. The enemies a man encounters on the path of learning to become a man of knowledge are truly formidable. Most men succumb to them. What kind of enemies are they, Don Juan? He refused to talk about the enemies. He said it would be a long time before the subject would make any sense to me. I tried to keep the topic alive and asked him if he thought I could become a man of knowledge. He said no man could possibly tell that for sure. Thank you for listening to tonight's show. You can hear the archives of this show or any others by going to jackalope105fm.com and clicking on Archives. If you have any questions, you can contact me directly from my webpage, www.jackalope.com.
theshamansbrew.com. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.